Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Eugene Peterson would talk about the search in his life for congruence, a harmony of his thoughts, his actions, his beliefs, And I I think about that image and that phrase a lot in my own life, usually in the angst of the felt absence of of harmony, the felt absence of God's shalom in the face of my own shortcomings. But as I've sat with that phrase for a couple of years now, and I really think Eugene was right on. When, When I think about what do I really want? What do I desperately long for in, in the whole of my life, my actions, my, my thoughts, my words, my responses, my longings, that they would all be framed under the reign and rule and the beauty of King Jesus. I want my life to express the words of the psalmist in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul faints for you. And that's what I want to focus on in this teaching series over the course of the next several weeks. What is it that we long for? And and how does that point us not away from God? I think so often we think of our desires as something that that is somehow a distraction from God. But, But actually, our desires point us to the destination, to the source that is God. And I want us to think about how what the things that we desire are actually an indicators that we were made by the very hand of God. And then I want to look at what does our culture long for? What are some things that we just kind of share in common, even though some people wouldn't put the labels of Christian on it or not? And what do all these longings, these desires say about us? C.S. Lewis, in a brief meditation called Meditation from a Woodshed, describes a moment that he just happened to be paying attention, where a beam of light burst through the outside, otherwise dark interior of the woodshed that he was in. And the light, because he was in a dark room, just completely overtook everything he was looking at. And as it caught his eye, he noticed that as he stared at the light, the light obscured everything else in the room. But if he looked beyond the light, as he said, if he looked along the light, what he would find was the source of the light, which was the sun. And what we want to do is we want to look along the light of our longings. We want to look beyond the sense of desire towards the source from which they come. Elsewhere, Lewis describes this concept with the German word Zenzut, indicating that we are not where we were meant to be. We are not where we are destined to be. Lewis wrote to a friend that our best havings are wantings. And he says this, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is the truest index of our real situation. We're going to look in John chapter 9, and in John chapter 9, we find Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, walking along as he did. And it's so incredible, we should never lose sight of this, the God of the universe walking the first century streets. And as he's walking along, he encounters a man born blind. And Jesus' disciples, his apprentices, those who followed him, turn to Jesus and they ask him, Rabbi, 
Who sinned that this man would be blind? This man or his parents? You see, the disciples here display a kind of karmic, retributive thinking. The disciples here, uh, reflect, their question reflects the way that the Jewish culture of Jesus' day often viewed sin. This is the same stream of thought that informs Job's friends, who show up as Job's world has literally disintegrated around him. Job's friends show up in the midst of all this carnage, and they say to Job, So Job, what would you do wrong that you, you deserve all of this? And, and the book of Job is, is a polemic to that kind of thinking. But in this sort of thinking, we see where the disciples are coming from. And although God is kind of nominally involved in this kind of thinking, really this is a closed mechanical view of the world. Essentially, there's a formula at work here that says you do a bad thing, you receive a punishment, and that the world goes back to zero. What's being sought here in these kinds of formulas of control is is the power to control a circumstance by being able to explain it. This is the ancient equivalent of a closed universe. And I want to explain what I mean by that term because it is the very air that we breathe in our modern Western world. When I say a closed universe, uh, I'm talking about the sense that for most of human history, humanity has lived with this sense that their world was subject and interlocked with a divine unseen realm. This unseen reality had a profound impact and implications for every aspect of human life. Uh, from, From the fact, would babies be born? Would the rains come for the harvest? The gods were instrumental in bringing all of these things about. However, philosopher Charles Taylor, in his seminal work called A Secular Age, which is this giant book, notes that there's a profound shift that has happened since the Enlightenment. Uh, Yeats, the the poet, puts our cultural shift and our cultural conundrum simply. He says, our ladder is gone. And now all we are left with are rags and bones of our hearts. Paul Gould, in describing what, what Charles Taylor calls a disenchanted universe, and that's this sense that there is nothing outside of this. Uh, the, the lead singer for Death Cab for Cutie, a guy named Ben Gibbard, writes these sort of humanist hymns. And there's one song called St. Peter's Cathedral. And, and the bridge of that song just basically repeats in a fatalistic sort of way, there's nothing past this. There's nothing past this. And that's what Yeats is describing in his image of our ladders being gone. And Charles Taylor calls this sense where there's nothing outside of the world that we can see, nothing beyond the material universe that we can observe. Charles Taylor calls this a disenchanted universe. And the philosopher Paul Gould describes this sense of a disenchanted world by saying the goal, the goal of our life in our modern culture is no longer virtue oriented as it was, as the Greeks argued, or religion-oriented toward the divine, as the medievals argued. Rather, the goal of life is entirely subjective. It is found within the self. To be specific, the defining goal of an individual's life in this disenchanted age is the satisfaction of our personal desires. And so we see where our culture kind of meets with this sense of a closed world, that this is the very air that we breathe. Now we're going to go back to John chapter 9 and see how Jesus 
confronts and overcomes this kind of thinking. So in John 9, the sense is that this man has sinned, or he is the victim, at the least, of his parents' sin, that somebody is paying for a wrong that has been committed. This closed system, the idea of a mechanistic retribution, is the one that Jesus addresses with his answers. Look at John 9, verses 3 and 5. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So that God's work might be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now Jesus dismisses the notion that this man's sin is the outcome of a cosmic formula. Also, your, your translation of the Bible uh, may suggest that this man was born blind so that God's work would be displayed in him, as if this man, through all of his life, had lived blind, so that on the day where Jesus finally came walking across his path, that God would be able to glorify himself. There's a lot wrapped up in that theology, but just, just as a shorthand, I think there are good grammatical reasons to suggest that this is not what's being said here. So my translation that I read above has slightly altered uh, maybe your text to, to reflect that. You see, Jesus doesn't just dismiss the concept of, of the question itself, of the question whether this man sinned or his parents sinned. Jesus dismisses the very closed system that has brought this question about in the first place. This man lives, this man born blind, in a continual darkness. And, and what's worse, speculators who look at his life, who walk by him every day, assume that not only does he live in a physical darkness, but that he lives in a spiritual darkness that somebody has done something to deserve. There is no new hope, no new possibility, no, no tomorrow that awaits where something new might happen. And it's to this line of closed mechanistic thinking that Jesus presents the beauty of his very self, saying to the darkness, I am. I am the light of the world. There are several of these I am statements in John's gospel, and they all echo the name that was given to Moses as he asked God when he confronted him in the burning bush. And God says, go Moses. And Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? And God responds, I am that I am. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus picks up on this theme and he says, I am. To this closed world of mechanistic thinking, Jesus presents the beauty of his very self. And at this point, it would do well for us in the context of the story to ask, what do you think this blind man wanted more than anything else in his life? Jesus elsewhere in John's Gospel asks a man who is born without the ability to walk, do you want to be made well? And that may seem like the most obvious question in the world. You see, life for anybody, regardless of their class in the first century, was rugged and difficult. It was a struggle. Now for somebody with a physical malady of some sorts, this difficulty was multiplied exponentially. This man born blind had a physical longing for a physical healing. And look what happens. Jesus kneels down, he spits on the ground as he gathers it up into his hands, and he rubs dirt on the man's eyes. Then he sends him to a pool to wash in that very pool, and as the man obeys Jesus, as he does what Jesus tells him to do, he is healed instantly. He can see the world is opened up to him. 
Jesus meets this man in his physical first order longings. Jesus meets this man with the very thing that he needs in this moment. And in doing so, in gathering the dirt into his hands, we see echoes of God crafting the human out of dirt in Genesis 2. It says in Genesis 2 that God took the dust of the ground and formed a human and that he breathed his life into his lungs. Jesus, the word who brought the world to life, is recreating, is doing a new thing, a new work of creation, is being born out right in the context of this very man's life. He is being brought to a new world where Jesus is showing him the light of the world. Jesus is the artist who breaks through the closed systems of our day and his day. He breaks through our captured imaginations and beckons us to beauty. Dostoevsky said that beauty will save the world. And as Jesus presents his very self to us, he is trying to show us his salvation, his beckoning, his calling. And this blind man's healing immerses us in the reality of beauty. Beauty is not simply some unnamed quality, something ephemeral and vaporous. We can't quite put our finger on it. Beauty is sensual. It is aesthetic. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, says he describes beauty as goodness made manifest to the senses. And we've all had that sense listening to that song or or seeing that production, or reading that story, or eating that meal, that life is in that moment as it should be. This is what beauty is. It is a beckoning to God's shalom, a beckoning to the way that the world was designed to function under His reign and His rule. And here's the thing, friends. We miss this so often. You see, there's so often a shortchanging of what Jesus was doing in his life. We so often think that Jesus was floating around like a robot, teaching people things, saying, don't do that, do this. We, we so often miss the reality and the beauty of Jesus for who he was. Jesus lived beautifully. He lived beautifully, as we see in this story in John chapter 9, by healing. He lived beautifully. By sharing the table, by sharing the table with those who nobody would eat with, by sharing the table with his closest friends, Jesus is showing a picture of the life that will continue on into eternity. He's saying, this is what God's kingdom looked like. Jesus lived beautifully by telling the the most ingenious stories that the world has ever encountered. Jesus' stories would invite people right into the middle of them. And they always featured some sense of a twist, some sense of things being turned upside down. Jesus was a brilliant storyteller. Jesus lived beautifully by going to the synagogue and hearing the scriptures read and by seeing every aspect of his life in congruence in a sense of harmony, that it all fit together under God's beautifully orchestrated world. And I find this so fascinating. Jesus lived beautifully in the mundane, in the unseen. Most of Jesus' life is unremarked upon by the scriptures. Jesus lived his life in the unseen, lived his life as an artisan carpenter, lived his life as a son, learning from his mother, learning from her beautiful words. Mary's influence on Jesus is profound. 
Jesus lived his life walking along the shores. We see his great love for the water in Matthew's gospel specifically, where he just, that's just where he wants to be. Jesus lived a beautiful life. And we miss this so often when we miss the reality of who Jesus is. And when the man is healed in John's gospel, it creates this stir in the community. The man's neighbors and the local religious leaders, the Pharisees, begin to ask questions. Well, how did this happen? Is this really the same man? How can we be sure? Now think about this for a second. Imagine that somebody you'd known your entire life that had lived with a physical malady suddenly was freed of that malady. Would you respond, well, well, can we prove that it happened? Are we sure that that's what was supposed to happen? No, you would rejoice with that person. You would share in their joy. But that's not what happens in a closed system. You see, a closed system, when it's confronted with beauty, seeks for explanations that it simply doesn't have. Seeks to hold on to control. It seeks to close out the light where no light, not even the light of the world, can get in. And instead of being in awe at this thing that Jesus has done, this thing that has unfolded before them, look what they settle on in verse 16. So some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, talking about Jesus, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Really? Like, that's what you're worried about? A man who literally has been blind his whole life can see now? Like, he saw the sun for the first time in his life, and you're worried that this happened on a Sabbath day? Is that really what you're going to focus on? And this is where, just as it did in Jesus' day and his time, the beautiful confronts our modern disenchanted world. It breaks in on our patterns of distraction, our efficiency models, our to-do lists. Genesis 2 describes the Garden of Eden as a place where there were trees that were simply pleasing to look at. And the beauty of Jesus is inviting us into this kind of wastefulness, into this kind of extravagance. Yes, God can heal on the Sabbath because God is always working, as Jesus says, and so Jesus is working as well. Yes, God can heal a man born blind because His touch and His presence are enough. Jesus wants to invite us into this kind of slowed down rhythm where we see the world as if for the first time he is the light of the world and when we focus our attention and our longings upon Jesus, our world comes to life. The beauty of Jesus slows us down. It challenges our powers of explanation. Like how would you explain a beautiful symphony to somebody? There's some level where you cannot. Jesus' beauty invites us into mystery. We cannot explain everything. And so we have to entrust ourselves to the one who is beautiful beyond measure. And we are always at the danger of responding like the Pharisees do here. That we simply don't have time. We don't have time for that kind of thing. We, or we don't, we don't, you know, beauty and imagination are the stuff of children. We have grown up now and now we have to live in the real world. We have to do the things on our to-do list. Jesus is saying, there's another way. And when we do this, when we say we don't have time, when we challenge the beauty of Jesus with our own darkness, we miss the beautiful light of the world that is standing right in our midst. And the text goes on and describes the scene 
of the man born blind as he's being interrogated by the local religious leaders. Look what it says. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus still. And the man born blind answered, Well, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I can see. And they said to him, the Pharisees, Oh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man born blind answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. The man born blind answered them, Well, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know, all of us here, know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the Pharisees answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out of the synagogue fascinating story. And notice their conclusion. Their conclusion echoes the question that started this whole thing in the first place. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? And the Pharisees' conclusion, after being confronted with the beauty of what Jesus has done in this man's life, is, you're a sinner. Get out of here. This man is interrogated by the Pharisees, and I, I personally love his combative spirit. There's a lot of, of sarcasm that's quite rich in his responses. And, and through their deliberations, the Pharisees have determined, incredibly, that Jesus, because he healed this man on the Sabbath, is in fact a sinner. And they want this man, who has just been healed by Jesus, to confirm that for them. And he's looking at them, looking at them, literally, like, are you crazy? He says, I do not know whether this man is a sinner or not, but what I do know, echoing the words of amazing grace, I was blind, but now I see. And because this man refuses, refuses to capitulate to their system of explanation, to their closed system and their closed imaginations, they kick him out. You see, this is the only response that our closed systems have to the transcendence of God, to the way that God breaks into our reality. Either we're going to respond to that invitation or we're going to shut it out and try to rid the presence of that manifestation from our midst. And Jesus heard that they had driven him out and Jesus comes to him again. And it says when he found him, he asked him the question, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man born blind answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, literally, and the one speaking with you is he. Then the man born blind said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. After this man's eviction from the synagogue, Jesus comes to him. And this scene is so powerful. And I think it really encapsulates what we're trying to do through this series. Because you could think of it in, in two ways, really. First, like this man... Think of how his life has changed through the course of just a few moments with Jesus. This man woke up 
got to the place where he was on the, on the side of the road, completely in darkness. Through one encounter with Jesus, this man can see now. His life is completely changed. As we said, Jesus meets this man in his first order, physical longing. The thing that this man may have expressed that he wanted more than anything else Jesus has provided. And yet, in a second way, this man has been cut off from his community. There's a sense of disorientation, a sense of loneliness. He's been driven out because he refused to capitulate to the closed systems that the Pharisees were trying to force him into. And Jesus asks him, in the midst of all this, the most powerful question. He asks him, do you believe? And remember, this whole story with the man formerly blind, who now can see, began with the question put to Jesus, is this man a sinner? But as Jesus stands before him, he asks him the only question that matters, not what you've done, not what your parents have done, not what's been done to you, but do you believe? And this man asks him, who, who is this son of man so that I may believe in him? And Jesus doesn't respond, bro, I, I, I literally just opened your eyes, it, it's me. Jesus responds to him gently and brilliantly. You have seen, emphasis on seen, the one, and he is the one speaking with you. And the man makes a confession of faith, and his allegiance is put in King Jesus. Lord, I believe. And he worships him. And at this moment, we see this man's deepest desires, the desires that are behind the desire to see, the desire for beauty, the desire for congruence, the desire for harmony is fulfilled as he bows down in worship to Jesus, as he becomes who he was always designed to be, one who lives in right relationship with his God. This incredible scene unfolds and we see these incredible layers to this story. And Elaine Scarry, she talks a lot about beauty and justice and how these two things are intertwined. And we're going to talk about justice later on in this series. How it's a deep longing of all of our hearts, whether, whether we would call those longings Christian or not. And she describes that beauty, sooner or later, brings us into contact with our own capacity for making errors. Now, in our story today, we see this. The beauty of Jesus makes manifest the goodness of God to the senses of this blind man, literally opening his eyes. The blind man not only finds fulfillment in his first order longings, those things that he knows he needs, but ultimately he finds a desire that he may not have even previously had a name for as he bows down and he worships Jesus. But this beauty of the light of the world beckons him into this moment. Do you believe? But the Pharisees, through their explanations, their rejection of Jesus, literally miss the beauty of the whole event. They spend the whole time in judgment trying to explain it. They miss the healing. They miss the light of the world that is shining right in their midst. They, they think they are living for God and they miss God standing right before them. It's so tragic. And friends, Ecclesia, when we are not in touch with our own longings, when we can't put a name even to like to the question, what do you want? We can miss the deluge of beauty that God gives us as he gratuitously and abundantly and extravagantly pours out his goodness and his good gifts to us in the everyday rhythms of our life. 
And so many of us, as we talked about, so many of us are trying to satisfy desires with things that are not God. And sin, in many ways, is, is just simply this. It's simply us taking a good and God-given desire and trying to satisfy it with something that is not God. Trying to, to make something that is not God fulfill an eternal longing. And this, where so many of us, if we were asked the question, what do we long for? What do we ache for? What are the things that we wake, wake us up in the morning? We could all probably list some longings that are quite healthy. So what do you long for? What do you ache for? What are those desires that wake you up in the morning? We all could probably list some really healthy longings. And some things that we, we're quite sure that God has put as, as a deep and burning passion in our hearts. Now, I don't know where you're coming from. Uh, if you long to be in a lifetime relationship, you're longing to be, to be married and to finding that person who's going to be your covenant partner to serve God throughout the rest of your life. That, that sense, we, we all have this sense that that is a, a good and right longing. I don't know if you're longing for uh, some sense of clarity in your vocation. To know that, that either you're serving God through the gifts that you've been given, these gifts that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and you're serving others with those, or just some sense of your day job reflecting the overall values and, and the way that you see the world and the way that you've, you feel like you've been called to live in it. I don't know if you're, you, you feel like you've been called to be single for the rest of your life. And you're worried and you're afraid that you'll be alone. Or there's a sense that, you know, because especially the church has idolized the nuclear family for so long, that, that you'll be left out of the discussion. I don't know where you're coming from, but all of those longings, if we name those, we'd say, wow, those are, those are good and true and beautiful. And then I know if, if we were to answer the question honestly, with some sort of truth serum, what do you long for? And there's some, some desires that we'd be ashamed of, some things we wouldn't want projected to the wider world. And, and it's so important for us, I think, to just see how truly beautiful God is. And I want to say this as your pastor, I want to say this in faith, that God will fulfill the desires of your heart. He may correct the distortions of those desires. He may call us to himself and call us to repentance where we have tried to fill those desires with things that are less than God. But as a statement of faith, I want to say that God will fulfill our longings to see his beauty and his shalom manifested in our lives. Psalm 27 reminds us that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That God is faithful and he is able and he is willing to pour out his life into our lives. It is so important that we see this in the story of the man born blind. And I also want to invite us to see that when we try to rest control, when we close off our imaginations and we say, well, that can't happen. This, this thing that I've been longing for, clearly God's not going to do it, so I need to take matters into my own hands. And this is what sin is. This is where we try to fulfill our longing for beauty with things that aren't God. When we try to use substances or distraction or other people to simply satisfy and objectify our deepest longings, we find ourselves in darkness. And the cross 
In every way is the answer to our darkness. John tells us that the light of God has come into the world, but we show that we love darkness more than we love the light. And yet the light still shines. The darkness tries to overcome the light, but the darkness cannot overcome it. And Jesus on the cross is the manifestation of God's light. He is the light of the world. And no matter how dark it gets, his light will outshine our darkness. The cross is the antithesis of beauty, the symbol of all that is ugly and evil and cruel about this world. It is sensual in all of the worst ways. It is grotesque and morbid. It is uh, shouts of agony and uh, smells of sweat and blood. And for Jesus, the taste of bitter wine. It is an instrument of humiliation and torture that leads to death. And Jesus, like the man born blind in our story, is being chastised for being a sinner. He's being rejected and outcast as he's crucified outside the gates of the city walls. But God's beauty is a beauty that saves the world. A beauty that turns the world upside down and really right side up. A beauty so powerful that it can be manifested and reveal the glory of God even at the moments of our worst darkness. There on Calvary, there in the darkest night, Jesus still shines through as the light of the world, revealing the glory and the work of God and fulfilling our longest longings, our deepest desires. The cross is beckoning. The cross is God beckoning our imaginations, our longings to see. That, that though he was crucified, three days later he was resurrected and the beauty of God goes forth through all of eternity. That God's spirit is poured out, that Christ truly is, as Augustine said, the wellspring of all beauty. And that until our desires and all of our longings find their rest in him, we will remain restless. The cross is God's invitation to come and see that all of our longings are pointing to the Son, pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, pointing to His love for us. He will meet us in our physical need and our longings, and He will fulfill our greatest longings. This, this, friends, is the promise of God's beauty. Let us pray. Beautiful Jesus, God, may we be just simply overcome with the beauty of who you are in these moments. God, would we see that all of our attempts to establish a beauty of our own, all of our attempts to wrest control or to fulfill our desires, God, will fall short in the face of your beautiful light. God, would you shine in the darkness of our hearts, God? revealing, bringing to light, not, not so you can uh, leave us in shame, God, not so that you can just reveal how broken we are and leave us there, God, but to invite us into the fullness of life. God, you can invite us to see your light, God, which illuminates every other thing, God, which fulfills our deepest desires, God. God, in ways that are both physical as we see in the story of the man born blind, God, and deeply, deeply soulful and spiritual. God, you are the light of the world. We pray that you would shine, that you would shine upon our longings, that we would long for you more than anything else. Jesus, would you heal us where we need healing, where we are in darkness. 
God, would you bring us to the light of who you are? God, would you forgive us for our our judgment like the Pharisees? Would you forgive us for our closed imaginations and our living and our capitulating to closed systems? God, you are inviting us to a world that is so much more expansive and beautiful than we would ever ask for or imagine. God, you are the light of the world. Shine in our hearts. Shine through us. Help us to look along our desires to see you at the source the giver of every good gift, the fulfiller of every desire. God, you are good. You are beautiful. We love you. It's in your name we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.